You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to this uh, extremely timely seminar. I'm Zanny minton Beddoes from The Economist. Um, I'm delighted to moderate this session on income inequality in the U.S., the international perspective. I think it's, um, it's probably no exaggeration to say that the question of income inequality is becoming one of the, and perhaps may become one of the central issue in this year's campaign. It has presidential campaign. It's a, uh, <laughs> an economic problem, an economic issue that has, has come front and center to the policy environment in a country which has traditionally believed in a rising tide lifting all boats. And I think there's a fundamental shift in the US on attitudes towards income inequality. And it's a subject that's enormously controversial, uh, enormously complicated, and to wit, the fact that there was a long discussion just now before we started on three members of this panel about data. So the question of what's actually happening to income inequality, what's the best measure, why is it happening, I think is a hugely important one in this country. It's one, as I said, central to the campaign, one side accusing the other of social Darwinism, the other, other side accusing the Democrats of a, uh, a politics of envy, if you will. Um, at the same time, the US is not alone. And I think in the, in the rather introverted debate that we sometimes find ourselves in in this country, it's easy to forget that the question of income inequality and rising inequality is a huge one in many, many other countries. Uh, it's a huge one in Europe, where Francois Hollande, the uh, presidential challenger in France, is proposing a 75% tax on top income. It's a huge one in China, where the leadership is extremely worried about social harmony and very sharp increases in inequality. It's a huge issue in India for much the same reason. And the one part of the world that seems to be an exception to this is Latin America, where it's still a very big political issue, but actually is one part of the world where, in many countries, income inequality has been coming down, albeit from a very, very high level. So I think it's enormously useful what uh, Uri and Kamal have planned to do today, which is to lay out what a global perspective can, what light that can cast, if you will, on the US debate. Because I think it's important to remember that not only is this conversation happening in this country, it's happening around the world, and I think to the extent that some of the causes of rising inequality are part of the broad global changes going on across the world economy, then that makes you think differently about what one does to address them. And so to have a clear sense of the facts, to have a clear sense of what's going on in the US and how that compares with the rest of the world, and how that then leads you into understanding causes and offering remedies is what I hope the two of you are going to do. Certainly in your excellent paper, you provided some very, very interesting fact base, as the McKinsey people like to call it. I think it's important to have a clear fact base. Uh, some interesting uh, examination of potential causes and some good ideas for solutions. And so I hope that's what we will discuss today. So first of all, Uri and Kamal will lay out what their paper is about, what they, uh, what they found. And then we have two superb uh, discussants, two panelists to react to this, two, I might say, two of the world's experts on income inequality. Branko Milanovic at the World Bank has written... Uh, I think probably more than anyone on this subject. No, no, there so, are people who wrote more than I. Really? I haven't found them yet. <laughs> certainly, certainly one of the most prolific writers, but actually he's being, um, he's being chased fast by Pragash Lungani from the IMF. Uh, the IMF not traditionally known to be an organization that has cared a huge amount about it. <laughs> but uh, has suddenly um, become very front and central in this debate. And so after um, Kamal and Uri have laid out their arguments, we will have reactions from the two mm. panelists. We'll then have some discussion. Then very soon, I hope we open it up to a broad discussion with all of you, because we're a small enough audience that we can really have a discussion. So, Uri, why don't we start with you? Um, Kamal, we'll start. Oh, Kamal, I'm so sorry. Kamal, you go first. All right. <laughs> well, 
I'm really happy that, uh, Zaini, you could come and moderate this. Thank you very much, and thanks to all of you for being here. I'm also super happy that Prakash and Branko are here. I mean, I must say, Uri and I are, are beginners in this field, I would say, um, you know, coming more from the trade and overall macro side. And um, Branko is really somebody I've learned a huge amount over the years from and wh whose work continues globally. And Prakash has emerged, as you said, <laughs> Zani, from the IMF side. And uh, really, uh, we, we, we shared some meetings with Prakash, and uh, his thoughtfulness is, is really very special. And I'm very glad that the IMF is taking this uh, very seriously, in cooperating, for example, with the ILO, uh, which, of course, had always uh, had a, a great focus on this. Now, just to, 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 to start the, the uh, to, to give, give an overview, I mean, the first thing that obviously one has to kind of tackle, and that the paper tries to tackle it, is, you know, what, kind, what do, you mean, do we mean by inequality? I mean, you can look at inequality from various angles and various measures, various definitions, okay? I think there are three which are particularly interesting. One is the Gini, which kind of gives you a feel for the overall distribution across the population. Um, but it doesn't necessarily give you what's happening at the extremes. And so depending on what you're interested in, uh, the Gini may be you know, a very useful or not such a useful uh, measure. There is the difference which in the American discussion has come up quite a bit between the mean and the median. Do you think you should explain what they are? Does everybody know the Gini coefficient? All right, everybody's considerably higher level of knowledge than in my editorial meeting. Well, he doesn't know. Okay, okay it may just be worth explaining what the Gini coefficient is. Well, it, it's it's the uh, it, it's the ratio, if you like, between a situation where there would be totally equal income versus totally unequal income. That's probably the, the easiest way zero, to grasp it. If everybody has the same income in a country, it's zero. If one person has all the income, it's one. One. And you can then you get a number between zero and one, which is a kind of summary measure. Of inequality. Yeah. Um, the, the median is, in a sense, the, the person in the middle of, of, of a population. You know, it's not the, the mean is the average, but of course the mean goes up. If somebody is extremely rich at the top, you get a higher mean. And uh, what's happened in the US quite uh, clearly is an is a increasing divergence between the median and the mean. Now, depending exactly on what figures you use, and you know, and, and I, I, there's no point in going. To, I mean, if we had PowerPoints, we would do it, but to go all into all the details of the figures. But basically, a, a very shocking kind of statistic that comes through in, in much of the discussions is that the median income in the U.S. has hardly risen. Now, it has risen a little bit according to some measures, not at all according to others since the late 70s, okay? Which is really, I mean, when you think about it, a very dramatic statement. I mean, there's been productivity growth, there's been economic growth, and yet uh, the median income, the median uh, person, if you like, has had very marginal increases in the way that, that uh, uh, the figures are, are measured. Whereas the mean, of course, has gone up with, with the average. So this divergence between the median and, 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 the, uh, and the median is another very important uh, aspect, I think, of income distribution. And finally, uh, well, not finally, and then, well, uh, two, uh, two more things. I mean, what happens at the very bottom and what happens at the very top, the extremes, okay? The genie gives you an overall story, 
the median and income and mean gives you gives you another kind of look at that story, and then you have to look at the very bottom and at the very top, which is also extremely uh, interesting, of course. And at the very bottom, um, there actually have been losses over the last ten years, and and hardly any movement over the last thirty years. And at the very top, and this is uh, increasingly a big story, you know, everybody talks about the 1% and 99%. At the very top, the, the concentration has risen really quite dramatically. And the Piketty and Seiss, who have been following this uh, through the uh, income tax data, uh, when they did one of their original studies, one of their earlier studies, they showed that <coughs> the share of the top 1% in the US Household, fi household filing income, because when I, well, again, we don't have time to go into all the data, but it's very important to, to know which figures exactly is, one, one is referring to, okay? whether it's wages, whether it's tax figures. whether Anyway, their figures is uh, households filing tax, uh, uh, tax returns. The share of the top go goes from about 8% to 23%. Now, that has fallen in, during the crisis. Uh, to more than 17% and is now again rising. We don't have the latest numbers. One thing to be, uh, I think, to emphasize here is that the 23% as well as the 8% include realized capital gains. Not unrealized capital gains, of course, but capital gains that are actually realized. And a, and a fairly big chunk of the extremely high ratio of 23% uh, uh, is the other realized capital gains in 2007. Without that, it will be closer to 19%. So if you like, these are the kind of measures that one can look at. In terms of what is measured, and that's also very, very important. You can have, of course, market income, in other words, income before taxes and transfers, or income after taxes and transfers, and the two obviously are quite different, okay? And here the key point is that in the U.S., as in all other countries, taxes and transfers are redistributed. Okay, so if you take the Gini or if you take other, other measures, you find that the income after taxes and transfers benefits is more equal than, than the market income. So the, the, the combination uh, of government activities does redistribute. However, the degree to which it redistributes has dim diminished over time. The gap between the two figures has diminished over time. And I think that's, uh, that's one important uh, point to measure. Now, there is a lot of um, variation in terms of what the taxes are fairly easy. But on, on the benefit side, there's quite a bit of variation of what is counted as a benefit. Uh, actually, on the tax side, also there is uh, there, there was an interesting New York Times article the other day, because if you make the mental experiment of abolishing tax ex what's called tax expenditures in the U.S., the kind of special benefits that uh, uh, many taxpayers get, and if you compare a, a situation without that but the normal tax system to a system with, with these tax expenditures, it turns out the tax expenditures are highly regressive. So again, when we, when we kind of look at the numbers, we have to be careful to uh, remember wh what measure we're actually talking about. 
Um, now let me concentrate before I hand it over to Uri on one aspect which I'm particularly interested in. And, uh, and that is one can look at the income distribution story uh, from a ethical point of view, from a political point of view. One can like a particular distribution or dislike it. I think most people would, would agree that a totally equal distribution is not, uh, is not desirable because of incentive effects that would, be, would not be there. And most people would agree that a you know, completely unequal one, a kind of genie of 0.8 or 0.9, is certainly not uh, desirable. But I think there can be lots of variation as to what, what is a acceptable or desirable or kind of you know, sustainable income distribution. I, I don't think there is a, you know, what is an optimal genie uh, is, is, is not something that one can easily answer. So there's a whole debate on, on that. There's also a debate on the link to mobility. I won't go too much into that, but um, it is also true that there are correlations between mobility, low mobility and inequality, okay? They're not the same concept because inequality measures income at a point in time, whereas mobility, uh, at least relative mobility, sh the measures show what the chances are of somebody from, a, let's say, from a poor household in the, in the, tw in the first 20% to move to the next 20% or to move up further. And in fact, the, um, uh, the somewhat surprising findings that have come out over the last decade is that the U.S. is actually not one of the more mobile societies, although very interestingly, the perception is very different. And it's kind of, you know, uh, France is probably quite mobile. And if you ask the French, they're terribly immobile and, you know, will complain bitterly about it. And, and if you ask Americans, they, in general, they will still think that the, it's quite, quite a mobile society. But when you, when you actually look at the figures it, in terms of relative mobility, uh, it's, it's, it's actually one of the least mobile among the advanced countries. Most of the comparative data that we have are in advanced countries, but Branco has a lot more data that also brings in the uh, developing countries. So may, let me just make the point about macroeconomic policy. You know, there was a time in the early part of the 20th century when the critics of cap capitalism were saying that capitalism will lead to increasing concentration of income. The, those at the top are saving much more, a much larger fraction of their income than the others. So it will lead to a chronic deficiency in aggregate demand a la Keynes, in a, in a, in a kind of Keynesian context. Okay? Uh, and some post-Keynesian uh, economists like Kaldor and so on and, and repeated some of these models, Kalecki in, in, in Poland and so on, repeated some, some of these models into the middle of the century. They, they, they also predict that the fact that there would be this chronic lack of demand would lead to countries to look for demand elsewhere outside of their borders to try to have export-oriented development strategies, uh, undervalue their exchange rates, you know, export their unemployment, and it would lead to con conflict in the world uh, around trade and, 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 and these kinds of macroeconomic policies. Now, what happened since the 30s is quite the opposite until the 1980s. Income distribution actually improved in most of the advanced countries. Uh, in in the, the, the most dramatic period of improvement in the US was actually during the war, in the immediate aftermath of the war. But uh, even into the 50s and 60s, the prediction that income would be more and more concentrated at the top was, was wrong. And in fact, the opposite happened. 
Income was much less concentrated in the 50s and 60s than it was in the 1920s. Productivity growth led to broad-based middle-class income growth and, and, and demand growth. So this whole theory of uh, uh, um, chronic deficiency of demand kind of collapsed and evaporated. Now, it has reappeared in the last few years. Authors like Joe Stiglitz, uh, Robert Reich, and, and others stress, are stressing it. Uh, Stiglitz is coming out with a new book in May called The Price of Inequality, which I haven't read, but I've talked to him about it. And I think this will, uh, that, that book will, will stress that point uh, quite a lot. The standard macroeconomic theory or neoclassical mainstream theory answer to the chronic deficiency in demand is that even in a Keynesian framework where you, you, know, where you, you can have unemployment and so on, there's always a macroeconomic policy mix, among, an interest rate, if you like, that's low enough to stimulate enough demand investment and, and, and consumption demand to, to, uh, to create a uh, uh, macroeconomic equilibrium. So the fact that interest rates have gone basically during the crisis and the aftermath of the crisis in many of the, in the US in particular, to somewhat lesser degree in Europe, have come to basically to zero, uh, in a way have put a floor on that kind of macroeconomic answer. Okay? And therefore it may be, and I'm saying it may be because I think this requires a lot more work and thinking and modeling and so on. And one has to specify the kinds of models, you know, degree of price and wage flexibility and so on that one assumes. But there is, if you like, a, a view now that the increasing concentration of income combined with a monetary policy that in a sense cannot be much more expansive than it is, uh, is creating a chronic deficiency of demand. And that, in fact, fiscal policy is caught by the high debt ratios. So you can't really, without scaring the markets and running into debt problems, have very expansionary fiscal policy. You can't do very much on interest rates anymore. You can still do you know, QE3s and QE4s maybe, but that also has its limits. So that the answer to starting demand again could well be that you actually have to have a redistributive fiscal policy and other policies that might uh, help income distribution so that you, you support private demand since public demand is constrained by the fiscal problems and challenges that the advanced countries face. So that you, 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 you can actually correct the fiscal deficit and reduce public debt, but while you do that, you, act, you have to stimulate private demand and to stimulate <coughs> private demand in a sustainable way, you actually have to do it through some income redistribution. And I think this is one of the more interesting um, discussions and, and, and avenues for research uh, in, in the future. It's very much linked with employment, of course, because one way to redistribute is to have strong employment, decent jobs, as the ILO would say. And then the ILO has done excellent work on that. So I think I'll stop at this point. Well, you've certainly um, raised some controversial issues, um, which I hope we come back to. But not only have you laid out what, uh, what's happened, I think, very clearly in the US, which in my, let me put my kind of simplistic journalist hat on, which is that by every measure, inequality's got worse. 
The Gini coefficient has got considerably worse, and the main measure in which things have got really bad here, or considerably worse, are the concentration of incomes at the top. And that's where the US is a real outlier compared to the rest of the industrial world. Um, and by almost by definition, the share going to the very bottom has decreased more than anywhere else. And so that's the sort of caricature portrait of what's happened in the US. As you laid out, um, it's come at the same time as a decline in mobility, which is already actually lower than most people think it is. And then you mentioned the, the very interesting potential cost, which I think, and I'm going to turn to later, to Kash to discuss this a bit, that it's, it's not just a question of equity, it actually could be a question of the functioning of the economy is worse because of this income inequality. Um, Uri, let's turn to you now. I hope in, in amongst all the many points we're going to make, you will give us a sense of how this compares with others and why it might be happening. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I have the easy job. So it's, uh, I have to describe what is causing this and what to do about it. Uh, the um, causes, um, there's actually broad agreement uh, about some things among economists uh, that uh, uh, skill-based technological change, uh, machines, robots, uh, etc., are a, a, is a very major force uh, behind uh, the inequality trend. There's also a fair amount of agreement that uh, financialization, the importance of Wall Street, uh, etc., uh, is uh, also helps explain uh, the gap, the widening gap between the top one percent uh, and and the rest. But there is much less agreement on many other factors that are often cited: uh, demographics, for example, trade, and uh, uh, migration. But perhaps the most important point that I want to make, and uh, uh, I think it's made in the paper fairly clearly uh, too, is that the big increase in inequality, uh, not just in the United States, but in the world as a whole, is best understood as a combination of many factors uh, working in combination and uh, reinforcing each other. Not as a list of separate factors, but uh, the interaction. And the clearest example uh, of uh, uh, the very powerful interaction <coughs> of factors is that between uh, technology and uh, trade. So if you look at trade in isolation, and many have done it, it cannot explain the big shifts, for example, uh, the fall in manufacturing employment, which you observe in all advanced countries, and now increasingly in many developing countries, uh, this cannot be explained uh, by trade. And in the United States, it cannot be explained, for example, by increased trade with developing countries. And there's been a big increase in trade in developing countries. So um, if you just look at the size of trade and the shifts of trade, uh, you cannot relate this to the very large decline in employment. Uh, that you have, for example, in uh, 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 manufacturing. Uh, also, the increase in the current account deficit does not correlate easily with uh, uh, reduced employment in manufacturing, in part because actually in the United States, when the current account deficit increases, usually unemployment is very low. That's because the current account deficit is increasing because of domestic demand in the United States, not because of increased competition uh, 
uh, from overseas. Uh, however, uh, if you dig deeper, skill-based technological change, machines, etc., is clearly not independent of trade with poor countries. Now, skill-based technological change would probably be happening anyway, yes? It would be profitable anyway. But increased competition from low-wage countries, uh, which achieve a certain level of productivity, makes automation a matter of survival for companies. So even though trade may not cause inequality directly, it uh, does so indirectly by forcing skill-based technological change. An example of how trade, globalization, and uh, uh, technology interact. However, the links between trade technology and, and inequality interact very powerfully in other ways. Because then you should ask, how do low-wage countries become more productive and threaten established industries, industries in advanced countries anyway? Well, that is by learning and adopting technologies from advanced countries. And how does that happen? Through the interaction created by trade, foreign direct investment, and migration, uh, interaction with the diasporas. So note also that the interconnection, these, all these interconnections are themselves made vastly easier by the reduction in costs of communication and transportation, which are themselves a result of technology. Okay, so I've tried to explain how uh, these, uh, these factors are very, very interactive. And uh, I believe that a big reason economists, uh, and in, for that matter politicians, often cannot agree on whether trade, migration, and FDI uh, cause inequality to increase and hurt the poor, is that all these forces are not independent forces. These are not exogenous factors. They are instead an adaptation to technological change and other more fundamental forces, and their spread uh, in the whole world. And uh, because this technological change is often skill-based technological change, it is inherently disequalizing all over the world. Manufacturing employment is falling in China as well as uh, in the United States. However, trade, FDI, and migration are adaptations uh, to these shifts and can actually benef be beneficial <coughs> not only to society as a whole, but also to the poorest in uh, many cases. I may have totally confused you by now. Uh, if, I, if I have, I apologize. But I try to uh, bring out uh, very complex interactions between, uh, between these, uh, uh, these forces and why it's difficult to separate them. Uh, now, some of the other factors that are believed to cause inequality are intimately linked to technology and globalization interacting. A very clear case is the winner-take-all phenomenon. These have always existed. The winner of Wimbledon, which I always wanted to do when I was young, by the way, uh, the winner of Wimbledon, or... Uh, uh, the, the fellow or lady who gets the leading role in movies or the CEO of a big company uh, have always done much better than number two, even if number two was almost as good 
But now the whole world is uh, available to them, uh, hugely increasing the reach and reward of success of uh, the top person. So that, uh, for example, modern technologies today enable billions, billions to watch uh, the final of the uh, Soccer World Cup, another thing that I very much wanted to do as a young man, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, or the Oscars. Um, whereas not to do that too. <laughs> no, well, no. <laughs> I was not that ambitious. Uh, or, or um, you know, Zanny, I went to a British boarding school. In a British boarding school, you always want to win at sports. So, the um, uh, or the Oscars. Uh, these are um, uh, people. Uh, these now reach billions, uh, whereas they used to reach thousands. And a hundred years ago, maybe uh, hundreds uh, only. Uh, so uh, uh, another example of the interaction of globalization and technology in uh, 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 in inequality. Financialization, uh, another example. Um, it used to be that uh, finance was a pretty state business. I remember when I uh, graduated from business school a uh, long time ago. Uh, people told me, don't go into banking, you know, it's a bad industry, you know, it's very conservative, and nothing happens, etc., etc. And, um, and this, at the time, you just made loans, and you had some pension fund management, etc., but it was relatively straightforward investment, buying shares and equities. Uh, today, uh, with the click of a mouse, uh, billions of dollars are transferred using very, very complex derivatives, uh, most of which most people can't even understand. Uh, so it's a combination of uh, um, a combination of the widening of the market and uh, the global market, and uh, uh, both uh, uh, information technologies, but also financial technologies uh, that uh, uh, help explain uh, the extraordinary returns uh, on Wall Street which one day I hope will be arbitraged away, just like uh, uh, the salaries in think tanks. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, 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 then, uh, now, what about the remedies? Do I have time to talk you about do? remedies? Briefly. Briefly. Um, so once I describe it, what is causing it, it's fairly evident that this is tough to deal with. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, can you stop technology, trade, or FDI? Uh, and if you could, would you? There are obviously big gains that are coming from technology and uh, trade, etc., which are translated in lower <coughs> prices for all of us. Of course, if you lose your job as a result of trade, you are, uh, uh, you're worse off. But the average of society is better off uh, because of trade and technology. Uh, 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 Etc. So, uh, uh, so the answer cannot be to deal with the uh, fundamental cause, even if we could, uh, which would be very difficult to do. Uh, so there are really two big avenues uh, to deal with it. One is to improve the market outcomes uh, by uh, preparing workers for globalization and technological change. And here there are two main elements. <coughs> One is the kind of standard 
improve the business climate, improve the infrastructure of the economy, make the economy generally more uh, productive and uh, efficient. And the second is uh, invest in people, education, health as well, but education, uh, very, very important. Uh, so that's one uh, uh, set of measures. Now, bear in mind, however, when I speak about this set of measures, that uh, uh, these are things you really would want to do anyway. And not only are there things that you would want to do anyway because they make the economy <coughs> more efficient and better, but actually, more importantly, everybody's doing it. So I worked a long time at the World Bank, as did Kemal. And wherever you, we went around the world, we always said, yeah, you have to invest in education and improve your business climate. So everybody's doing it, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You have to do it. It's a horse race. But you really, you would do it whether you had the inequality trend or not. Maybe you'd invest. Uh, given the inequality trend, you'd invest a little more in uh, education uh, than you would otherwise, certainly in the advanced countries. So this leaves you with the second avenue, uh, the second big avenue, which in my view is much more pertinent because it applies very specifically to inequality and because countries can do them essentially independent of other countries. It's not a horse race as much as it is a, uh, an international host race, as, as much as it is a domestic reform <coughs> specifically designed to deal with the inequality problem. And uh, that is, of course, uh, redistribution of income. And Kemal has already mentioned uh, that the US uh, doesn't do particularly well in this regard. It does redistribute incomes. Market incomes are m more unequal than post-tax uh, and transfer incomes, but less so than other countries, and also uh, have become less redistributive. The US has become less redistributive uh, over time. Uh, the US spends proportionally less on uh, benefits uh, to people in general, whether it's social safety nets or uh, health expenditures or education expenditure, et cetera, et cetera. And also, its uh, tax system is generally less progressive and certainly much less progressive once you take into account uh, 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 the big loopholes uh, that, you, uh, that you have. Uh, uh, last point is about politics and inequality. The paper talks about uh, politics and inequality, um, because we believe that, you know, obviously you cannot uh, uh, talk about inequality without relating to uh, politics. And there are many issues here, but where the U.S. stands out uh, is uh, not that the rich are powerful. Uh, the rich are powerful everywhere, and uh, uh, they have always been powerful uh, in the U.S., um, but uh, the U.S. May st stands out for the cost of its political campaigns, uh, which really have very little resemblance to uh, the costs in other countries for various reasons. Um, and uh, also uh, stands out uh, for the size and organization of its uh, uh, lobbies. Um, Increasingly also for the important role that corporations can play directly in its uh, political campaign. 
And obviously, very high inequality in the US. And the US may not be a total outlier in the advanced countries, but it is an outlier in the advanced countries. The fact that you have a very high inequality combined with a large importance of money in the system, uh, these factors interact. The fact that uh, you have a high proportion of politicians, congressmen, etc., who are uh, really among the wealthiest people uh, in uh, in society, uh, the big influence that the very important financial sector has uh, uh, in the United States, and uh, uh, generally their ability to um, influence all these factors, to influence campaigns uh, of. Uh, uh, on the part of high net worth individuals. These are some of the areas where the, it's, it's not completely unique. And uh, there are societies that are much more corrupt than the United States and where governance is, uh, is much weaker than in, uh, than in the United States. But among the advanced countries, uh, the United States stands out uh, in this respect. And uh, the fact that, uh, as Kemal uh, documented, you actually have much less mobility in the United States than people generally believe, uh, social mobility, and also less mobility than other countries, uh, <clears throat> makes one concerned about uh, how this situation is uh, uh, going to develop in the future, whether, in other words, mm -hmm. there isn't a self-reinforcing cycle here at work of uh, increasing inequality, reduced mobility, and increased influence on uh, government policies uh, that favor disproportionately certain uh, sectors. Gosh, well, on that really uplifting note, I think <laughs> to the, uh, uh, the panelists, I just wanted to pull together what your excellent comments with those of Kamal a bit, because you started off, Uri, by laying out very deep-seated global trends, whether it was technology, skill bias, technological change, winner-takes-all in a global economy. And as I heard you go through them, I thought, well, this may explain why inequality is going up in large chunks of the world, and it's pretty deep global trends, and it's got very little to do with what I hear or read actually in the newspapers or the press here about you know decline of unions, uh, power of over politics, and so forth. And then you you move to the question of redistribution, and the striking thing there in the U.S. is not only that the U.S. is relatively less redistributionist than many other rich countries, and we can discuss quite how much less redistributive it is. It is true that it is extraordinary that the U.S. is now discussing becoming even less redistributive if you look at one party's platform at a time when everywhere else in the OECD the debate is about going in the opposite direction. And I think that's where the U.S. really stands out in the nature of the debate it's having right now about taxation, more tax cuts, which you really don't see anywhere else. And, and kind of understanding why that is the case is very interesting about you know, why the U.S. is different. And Branko, hopefully you can... I'd like you to bring some... Uh, real international knowledge to this, and you you okay. know you've developed more uh, measures of inequality okay. than anybody else, and you've looked more closely at the international experience. So, what's happening around the world, and how does that make you think about what's going on in the U.S.? Well, thank you very much, Sandy. So, I will. Uh, uh, <laughs> the economists used to be actually divided into economists who actually, you know, on one left hand, left armed, and right arm, but now they are all into in the PowerPoint or not PowerPoint. I prepared my PowerPoint. Now I, of course, have to present my PowerPoint without a PowerPoint. So I will actually draw some circles in the, in the air to, 
describe what I had in mind. First, I thought it was, of course, an excellent paper which actually brings together, I think it's going to be much read and quoted because it brings together basically all that we know and all that we don't know about uh, rising inequality in the U.S. and the rest of the world. So since then, he asked me about, of course, the rest of the world. Let me just make very clearly several points. First of all, it's absolutely true that actually over the last quarter century, rising inequality has been a trend in practically most of the world. With the exception, as Annie mentioned, over the last 10 years, Latin America is a big outlier in that respect because there was a decline in inequality. But one should not forget that Latin American inequality is still the highest in the world. So that's a very, very high level of inequality, much higher than in the US, but on a declining trend. Everywhere else, you have had basically 17 out of 22 OECD countries and such numbers, uh, you have had an increase. And then you just look, you know, OECD countries mostly increased inequality. Uh, China <coughs> and India, although the data for India are a little bit different, but you know, also an increase in inequality. All the transition economies, a very large increase in inequality. Africa, we know less because the data are not good, and Africa always had a fairly high level of inequality. So basically, this is the, the story everywhere. Now, the question you ask yourself is, why is that you know, happening? Actually, Uri mentioned some of the reasons. You know, the paper gives many of the uh, you know, explanations. To some extent, we have an over-determined system because we have really lots of explanations. They can apply to each individual country, several of them, or we can actually pull explanations from left and right and apply them to different countries. So we can say <coughs> in the U.S., as we have heard, it's skill-based skill technological change, or it could be globalization, or it could be openness in China, it could be uh, transformation from an agricultural society into industrial society. In Russia, it could be big movement from a planned economy to a market economy. So we have really one theory, I mean, different theory for different country, and we seem to explain it. But it's, uh, there is something I believe in that ultimately unsatisfactory for, for an economist who would like to have some broader view. So let me just propose, this is not something that I actually have written, but just sort of a, a, perhaps one way of thinking about that, which would be as follows. You know, the workhorse of, of inequality economics, until relatively recently, uh, has been the Kuznets curve. The idea being is that inequality goes up as the economy moves from being essentially agricultural based, where people more or less relatively have similar incomes, and then you have uh, industrialized economy, <clears throat> where you have essentially a big gap between rural and urban incomes, plus very high differentiation of wages in the urban sector or industrial sector. And then you have a decline because you introduce the country becomes richer, you introduce more tra transfers, education becomes more widely spread, and so on. And if you look at the data, although you know, Obviously, it depends who looks at the data, but if you look at the broad picture of Western societies where we have data going back, particularly for UK, going back to 1850, you do actually see something which goes like that, and then you have this, I think that Kemal mentioned, this long decline from the end of World War I, practically to 1979-1980. So this was a long decline. US actually charts more or less the same thing with sort of a delay of maybe 40 or 50 years, which is explained by globalization number one and movement of labor from Europe to the United States. So basically, both countries chart something like that. 
The problem becomes then when you actually have the situation that in the last quarter century we have an increase. So we now have a chart which goes like this, reaches a top somewhere in like end of the 19th century, goes for a long decline, and then there is an increase. So the question actually, this whole discussion comes together because we actually have a problem explaining this increase. And, one po and particularly when you look now, and I like to look at China as the US as two really sort of exemplars or antipode, and they are both actually, if you look at the layer, their uh, increase in GDP, it's remarkably similar. When you put it on the chart, US in the last 25 years has gone up, and not obviously as much as China, but the, the, the plot is like that. Inequality goes up. China, you plot GDP per capita, of course going up enormously, and also you plot the Gini coefficient, it's also up. So I am wondering to what an extent we may not be, and that goes back to the story of the, of the skill-based technological change, we're maybe in, in, uh, witnessing a sort of the second technological revolution, like the first one that Kuznets talked one, maybe now we have a movement of course from manufacturing to services, and the second one. So maybe we're basically witnessing a sort of a, a wave, the second Kuznetsian wave, which we never thought of that before because we thought there would be one wave because there was a structural transformation, you increase inequality, then you reduce it. So it could be that we are now in a, maybe it's actually a wave-like uh, wave movement. So there may be in the 50 years or 100 years, there may be in the third technological revolution or whatever the number it, it could be. Uh, and in that case, we would explain possibly the fact that the U.S. is on the peak because it is, of course, the leader in the technological change. China can be explained, of course, by the old Kuznetsian story of the structural transformation. The problem which I have with that explanation is that I cannot see, you know, like Kuznets, who could see the forces that would lead to the declining portion, because as I said before, he would see greater wealth, redistribution, greater spread of education. I cannot see other than education what would be these additional forces. I can see maybe there should be redistribution, but there are no, uh, in the Kuznetsian story, there are obvious reasons why people as they are wealthier redistribute. But as Annie mentioned now, we seem to have a situation, particularly in the United States, that that even if the economy is very rich, the demand for redistribution, at least as reflected in the political process, is for less of it, not for more of it. So I think that we are now in a, <coughs> I'm a person in a sort of a quandary, how, what can one say, how, what would be the forces, and goes back to the ending part of the, of, the, of the paper, what would be the forces that would bring this inequality down? Because clearly it has, of course, large implications for the, uh, for the stability of the economic system and for ability to get out of the crisis. I think Kemal talked about that before, so I will not repeat. So this is what I actually would, would say from the, from the sort of a global perspective with one, just one small note also, is that you have to distinguish Although the I mean inequality in all the most countries in the world went up, and global inequality sort of increased and might have peaked, you have to distinguish uh, clearly between what happened within nations from what happened globally. Within nations, as the paper shows, you essentially, particularly U.S. is a good example. You had very large increases concentrated in the top one percent of the income uh, uh, distribution and very small increases in median or, or even the mean and so on. In the world, it's a little bit different because of China and India, which really are poor countries 
growing up, though in the world you had a large increase at the top, but then you had a very large increase in real incomes around the median and even up to the mean because of massive push of people who were very poor in India and China. So they are actually now going up the ladders and there you have large increases, for example, of the median world income. And as we have heard, for the United States, that's not the case. So basically, storyline there, for the world, we have had over the last quarter of a century a plateauing global inequality with large increases in the median income. For the US and many individual countries in the West, we have had uh, large increases in the mean, stagnating median, and very large increase at the very top. So the, the picture is a little bit different if you look at the individual countries and the world as a whole. Thank you, Branko. Um, I think we're going to come back. That's a very important question. What will bring inequality down, particularly to the extent that this is a global trend? And I definitely want to come back to that. But first, Prakash, give us your perspective on the paper. And I, and I hope you'll focus on, uh, in part on uh, um, Kamal's point about the macroeconomic consequences. I mean, why is your institution now so interested in income inequality? Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Zani, and uh, thanks to um, the organizers, uh, Kamal, Yuri, for uh, um, having somebody from the IMF uh, on this panel, uh, which is unusual uh, in itself. Uh, I think that um, my institution has indeed been taking a lot of interest in it, uh, in this in this topic. Um, I should say that I'm perhaps um, more interested in it than the average person there. Sometimes they call me the conscience of the IMF uh, in, in, in my institution. Um, but in general, people have become more interested. And um, I think it is for the, sort of the reasons that uh, this paper uh, uh, talks about, which is that uh, people do worry about its, its macro consequences. And, and, and I'll sort of uh, try to address that in my remarks. Okay. Um, but uh, first, let me uh, start out by saying that uh, you know the traditional sort of gambit for a discussant is to uh, say that rather than discuss the specifics of the paper, I'm going to put it in the broader context of my own work. Uh, <laughs> that is a difficult gambit in a paper like this one, which is very comprehensive, very nicely done, uh, covers all the bases. So um, what I'm going to do is uh, put my work and my institution's work in the context of uh, the work that Kamal Yuri and their co-authors have done. It's a very nice paper. Uh, I want to make uh, three points and uh, written them down so that, uh, unlike Rick Perry, I don't forget the third. Um, <laughs> the first is that even though, uh, as I said, I personally uh, have worked on and worried about inequality and many are at my institution are doing so, um, I think we don't want to uh, give up our uh, sort of moral outrage at uh, things like absolute levels of poverty, which the institution, both the IMF and the World Bank and others have been focused on for uh, over a decade and, and, and more. So much as I like uh, the paper's focus on inequality, I think, uh, and they do mention it, I think that the focus on relative versus absolute uh, levels uh, must be maintained. I think it's still uh, quite shocking that even after all the progress in, in power, re reducing poverty over the last decade that we uh, still have a billion people living sort of on the edge of marginalization. Uh, so that's one point and I think it also uh, goes a little bit to what Branko was saying which is that in the measurement of uh, inequality, uh, 
I think we should keep in mind what he said about the distinction between what is happening within nations and what's happening globally. Uh, when we look within the US, we sort of worry about increasing inequality, but even um, the people at the bottom in the US are still uh, fairly affluent by the standards of, uh, of, of the, the rich in other countries. Uh, and I think we should, in a sense, obviously worry about what goes on within countries because the polit political process often deliver, can only deliver uh, progress within countries, as, as Yuri was saying. But if you look from a global perspective, if there was kind of a uh, kind of what I call this kind of the John Lennon uh, definition of inequality, which is to imagine there's no countries or imagine there's no country, then, then uh, as Branco said, there has been a lot of progress because of uh, the progress in China and India. So uh, let me sum, sum up what this first point is. The first point is, I think I would like to see as much of a focus on poverty reduction as inequality. And then I would like within the definition of inequality to have as much of a focus on global inequality as what's going on within nations. Uh, the second point is related to Kamal's point about what is the optimal level of Gini. And that's sort of something that has come up a lot uh, as I talk to my colleagues at the IMF. Um, you know, we stir up all this concern about inequality and uh, sooner or later the person working on the desk for Uruguay or the desk <coughs> for Burkina Faso asks you, well, okay, so the desk, for, uh, the Gini for my country is 0.37. Is that good or bad or, is, or what should I be shooting for? What should I be discussing with the authorities? What is their target level of the Gini? <laughs> so I think once we start uh, shaking up this uh, or unlocking this Gini from this bottle, people are going to ask us <laughs> these kinds of questions. Now, in the case of things like debt, uh, you know, we have at least a rough guidance. I mean, we have debt sustainability analysis that tells you whether or not a certain level of debt is going to be sustainable. We have kind of rules of thumb developed by, you know, Rogoff Reinhardt on what a debt intolerance level is. You know, 40% of debt to GDP, you start worrying, 60%, you may run into, you have an increased risk of financial crisis and so on. So I think at some point people are going to ask us what the Gini intolerance level is and uh, at what point you have to start worrying about risk of social crisis uh, if, uh, if the Gini goes beyond a, a certain level. And I think, uh, I would think that step two of this analysis has to try to kind of give people at least some guidance on this. And my third point is that Having said that we should give guidance on this topic, it's obviously uh, not very easy for the reasons that uh, Yuri mentioned, that there is kind of good and bad inequality, if you will, uh, because the forces that generate inequality are very complex. There's uh, lots of interactions among uh, various forces, as he mentioned. Some of those forces are certainly forces for good, like international trade. Um, others may be less so, but... and. Uh, as he's, as he's said very correctly, this is uh, three or four factors acting together, uh, some very exogenous factors, some policy-driven factors, which all interact to produce a given level of inequality. So our ability to, I think, say something about what the optimal level of the genie is, is going to be very difficult because of this sort of good and bad inequality. And um, let me do a bit of promotion for some sort of new work that I've been doing with a colleague of mine at the IMF, David Furcheri. 
in which we have been trying to look at some of these forces behind the genie and we find some very complicated uh, interrelationships and one that don't lend themselves easy to policy conclusions because they involve very complex trade-offs. <coughs> so for instance, we find that if the, size, the, the countries which have a high government size uh, tend to have lower genies. So government acts as a force for perhaps redistribution and declines in genie. Uh, but as Kamal and Yuri discuss in the paper, people have different views about what the optimal size of the government should be. And uh, not everybody agrees uh, on what that should be. So you might want for inequality reasons to raise the size of government, but uh, for efficiency reasons or other reasons, you may not be in favor of that. Another thing, which is uh, looking here at my ILO colleagues with whom I've been working for uh, several years now, two years at least, if not more, uh, on trying to rid the IMF of using slogans like labor market flexibility and rigidity and looking actually at specific reforms. And again, this is very preliminary work, but uh, I throw it out because I, my ILO friends are here and Kamal, who's been working with us, is here. Uh, it turns out that many of these uh, reforms, uh, many of these measures of labor market flexibility uh, turn out also to lower inequality. So if you have, if you reduce employment protection, uh, or, or, or rather countries that have lower em employment protection also have lower inequality. So again, this is a complex trade-off because uh, we've been working with our ILO friends to say, let's get away from the rigid IMF position. Uh, let's recognize that employment protection plays a useful role. Uh, and you know, we should not be against it just for doctrinaire reasons. But it also turns out that uh, it actually having uh, less employment protection uh, from these results helps you on the inequality front. So I, I think that this is uh, a very interesting paper. I think it does do a wonderful job of summarizing uh, what we know about, about uh, the topic. Uh, but it raises for me uh, a next set of questions, which I hope we can uh, uh, discuss in the remainder, which is how do we decide on an optimal level of genie? And then how do we sort of distinguish between good and bad forms of inequality? Uh, thank you, Prakash. I think those are uh, excellent directions to take the discussion in. What I'd like to do is to sort of focus the discussion back in on the U.S. I, mean, we've, I think the panelists have given a very comprehensive overview of, of what the data say and also put it into the, context, into the global context, which I think is very important, both Branko and Prakash. And I think your point about, uh, Prakash, about not forgetting that from a global context, inequality is declining. That's very, and Branco has the Branco's best measure point, of this. Also, he has um, a measure. Uh, it is, if you put everybody in the world in a long line, the gap between them has narrowed, between the first and, first and last, has narrowed because poor countries are growing much faster. Now, the, for me, that raises the question whether it makes the typical person in the US feel better or worse that the typical Indian or Chinese is now wealthier. Uh, but I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. At a global level, inequality is declining. But within countries, inequality, many countries, inequality is increasing. And then I think, Prakash, this gets very much to your point. What is, is there a kind of an optimal level of inequality? Or is there too much inequality? And, and let me, because I think you all agree with each other, so I'm going to slightly play devil's advocate here. Um, I think one can make the point that more egalitarian countries are becoming less egalitarian. 
and highly unequal countries, particularly Latin America, are becoming less unequal. And so, for example, the country in the OECD that has seen the biggest rise in inequality in the last 25 years is Sweden, from an extremely low base, but it's gone up percentage-wise rather dramatically. So couldn't one say that in this new world of technology and so forth that you've laid out, we're simply seeing a shift towards a kind of new level of more, a sort of global level of inequality, which is higher than it was for many countries, um, but it is lower than it was in many countries in Latin America. And if so, is that level too high? And let me put it very much in the context of the US, where inequality has clearly risen. Is it too high now? Do both of you think inequality is too high in the US? Should, more be, should we be, have as a policy goal to reduce it? Well, I mean, as most normative questions, you know, much depends on, on value judgments, which, uh, which are not necessarily objectively demonstrable. But do you think it would be interesting to get No, no, I mean, I'll answer it. I, I think, again, one has to think of the three things somewhat separately. The, the overall distribution, the genie, if you like, the, and the two extremes. Now, I fully agree with what Prakash said. At the very bottom, I mean, the outrage of having absolute poverty, you know, is, is something uh, very important and that has to be fought against. However, I, I would say that while there is still a lot of absolute poverty, there's been a huge progress on that front. So in a sense, you know, I mean, uh, the, the fight against poverty is, is ongoing and, the, you know, with, it's linked to conflict, disease, and all kinds of things. But in terms of the economic mechanisms, um, <laughs> It seems that the global economy has the means to fight absolute poverty. Okay, I mean, I, I may be overstating a little bit, but just to make the point. To me, where the big problem is, is at the other extreme. And here, I don't see any mechanisms that are actually likely to mitigate it. So too the, the much income is concentrated at the top. At the very top. I mean, you know... 8%, let's take the U.S. numbers, roughly 8%, let's say 20%, you know, the capital gains, will, will, uh, one can either include it or not include it. But I think the dynamic is all in one direction. And if we look at what's happening now, you know, profits are increasing, certainly in the, in the, in the large corporate sector. Wages are not increasing, even though employment is we have some good employment, not good, but at least better employment numbers. They are at wages which are lower than before the crisis. Okay? If we look at some of the factors that Uri was talking about, robots, machines, winner-take-all mechanisms, all these things are, are going in the same direction. And um, there, I mean, if, if I said, okay, 20% going to the, from 8 to 20% seems a lot, but maybe people will say 20%, well, maybe so we will maybe it's acceptable. Total income going to the top 1%. The top 1%, to okay. What if it goes to 30%? I mean, what if you have a society where the top 1% has a almost a third of the income, okay? I mean, if you, if you extrapolate the trend, we, one is going in that direction. And I think the, you know, I'm an economist, so... This is more of a political point, but the political capture of the system point becomes very, very crucial here. In other words... Well, let's get to that in a yeah. minute, but just, just to make sure, do you think the current concentration of income at the top, and, and it's some, somewhere between 18 and 20% of all income goes to the top 1%, in your view, 
with your, in a so political economy terms, is that too high? Way too high. Uri? I completely agree. I mean, I think what the paper does is it actually, I mean, I'm a little less diplomatic than my friend Kamal. So uh, what, what the paper does is it, it really presents, and we, we didn't start out that way, I promise, I swear. Uh, uh, we really wanted to really get a picture and try to do it in a, you know, as objective and fact-based way as we could. Uh, I think the paper paints a really a striking indictment of uh, the way the trends are moving in the United States. Uh, I mean, in in just about all the respects that we looked at, uh, the poverty, the uh, I mean, last year, according to the last data, the one percent got ninety three percent of the additional income, and you know, the one percent. Uh, you know, are just enormously rich in this country by any standard already. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, there's that. There's the whole argument we didn't even discuss about positional goods, uh, the kind of arms race to have the bigger houses and cars and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, and then there is the whole uh, uh, the whole aspect of uh, how policies have moved. I mean, you know, in the last ten, fifteen years, we've reduced the uh, uh, the tax on dividends and capital gains. Uh, we've reduced the taxes on uh, higher incomes. Um, and then there are these huge loopholes that you see. Uh, we didn't put it in the paper. The OECD, according to OECD statistics. U.S. corporations pay less tax than Greek corporations do, and uh, uh, Italian corporations, etc., etc., etc. So there's a whole, yeah. Why, why do we have one million, one point one million dollars? I just checked with my accountant. Uh, one point one million dollars uh, uh, mortgage uh, interest deduction. In this country, two people together. $1.1 million buys f four times the, the average house in the United States. The, the average house in the United States costs a quarter, less than a quarter of $1.1 million. Why do we have those? I mean, you know, there's just one after the other. And then, and then, Zenny, and then we have a lousy, uh, we have a lousy, I should be careful, you know, I'm not even an American citizen. We have a lousy... Come on, I know the rate you're going. We have a lousy uh, education. I mean, the, the public education system is, is very, very bad for a country this wealthy. So, sorry, yeah. Uri, you raised a lot of very yeah, sorry, interesting sorry, sorry. and important points, and I hope we want to come to all of them. Since we have a reasonably small audience, I'm going to continue this conversation with all of you. If you have a question that is pertinent to the topic we're currently discussing, please put your hand up and we'll include you. Gentlemen, you had one there. Just a question on this last sorry, on this last point. Um, Share of the share in GDP for the top one or top 0.1 percent. What I find striking from our data actually is that the increase of the share for the 0.1 percent that's something that where the US is an outlier compared to all the other OECD countries where the data is available. If you look at France, there has been the, the, their share of the share of the 0.1 percent has been virtually 
uh, stable over the past 20, 30 years, and they have been exposed to the same forces you described in terms of trade, technology. Um, so there must be something special in the U.S. what brought this high concentration of income for the very top. Uh, was it, is it maybe related to corporate governance? Is that an issue that uh, might play a role? Because a lot of the you know, people on the top is not actually um, entrepreneurs, it's, it's employees. Can I just ask a yeah. question? Did you, did you make the point that the share going to the top 0.1% yeah. is much, much higher than anywhere else in the world. In your data, the share going to the top 1%, has that increased as much in other rich countries as it has in the US? The, 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 the area with you where the US is the real outlier is to the, the 0.1%. It has, I mean, income has increased for this very top end of the income scale in all countries, but it has quadrupled more or less over the past 20 years in the U.S., and it has increased by maybe 10, 20 percent in other countries. So there's a huge concentration on the very top of the income scale, and, and if you look at the data for who are the people behind that, it's not necessarily that it's... Uh, the Bill Gates or the, the, the Steve Jobs is the, is the CEOs, is actually employees or people who, uh, who have, uh, you, you make the income as an employee as a, as a, at, at, at Wall Street. So there might be a corporate governance issue behind that. And the, the second point I want to make that's on the other end of the income scale. What I find, what also it's interesting from our data is if you look at the before tax income distribution, the U.S. is not that much of an outlier if you look at if you take the broad uh, definition like a Gini coefficient or the share of the, the, the top 90 towards the top 10%, it becomes an outlier after you take into account taxation and benefits. If you leave out benefits, it's not that much an outlier either. Uh, so the tax system is fairly progressive. So what makes it, what, what makes it less redistributional, the system, is is the, the lack of, uh, of uh, redistribution through benefits. So that's, I think, that's, that's another that's area. A, what the what question there, just one second. That's a very important point to make, because quite often in the U.S. debate, you hear these mm. talking points, actually the U.S. has the most progressive income tax system in the rich world, which is in, in narrow terms almost true. Actually, it's not for, The income tax system is very progressive, but if you put the whole tax system and you add benefits, it's much, much less progressive. I mean, there's one factor which is always left out. There's, this is also coming from our data, and this is why I took a look from a previous study from 2008 where we had a figure which is quoted by many people over here that the U.S. is the most progressive tax system. But it leaves out a number of factors, and the biggest factor which is left out on this calculation that in most countries, in the tax system, healthcare is included, whereas over here is excluded, and, and contribution to healthcare is usually regressive. So it would... It, it overstates the progressivity of the U.S. tax system. Very good. Gentlemen there. Thank you. Pretty basic political question. Why do the arguments for a greater redistributive system not resonate amongst the 99%, apparently? I mean, why is this politically unacceptable? And then a, a follow-up. Um, if, if that's the answer that I suppose we expect on a political basis, you made some interesting points about how, from an economic and macroeconomic point of view, there are compelling arguments for a more redistributive, redistributive system. So is that something that uh, will, can be talked about more than in the past? 
I think I'm going to ask Prakash you to comment, particularly on the second one. If anybody wants to comment on the first part of that question, please do. But I suspect it's not any of actually Kamal. It may be your comparative advantage, since you're the only person who's actually been a serving politician here. Well, not in the U.S., but um, no. It was the but actually, ac yeah. No, actually, um, when you look, at, there's uh, somebody at Carnegie, Steve Cull, who has some data on this. When you actually ask the question in the U.S. population, there is quite strong support for more redistribution particularly vis-a-vis -vis the top. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact number, but something like 67% of the people you know, support something like the Buffett rule and, and things like that. So there, there is that support. However, I think there is a general, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not a professional on this, there is a general aversion to taxes that translates into anything that kind of you know, has to do with it. But when you get specific, uh, it, the general, I mean, there, there is actually some support, and that support is increasing. Interesting. Prakash, could you, uh, we'll get to more questions in a second. I'd like to Prakash to comment on the second part of that question, which is whether you think the macroeconomic arguments for more redistribution are gaining credence in the U.S., but more broadly in the countries that the IMF is in. Well, I, I, I can't speak for very broadly about uh, the, the other countries. Let me sort of answer on a more somewhat personal level from my experience from teaching at Vanderbilt University in their executive MBA program. Um, my students are very s sensible, hardworking people, and uh, I think they would have not a view in common with most of you here. Uh, th th these are the people who have no support for redistribution. And when I ask them, what they say is that they have seen nothing about what government does that they find particularly reassuring or useful. They, they see redistribution as uh, basically a, a mechanism for a higher size of government, and, uh, and they feel that it's their money taken away and given to, to Washington. Uh, and these are, you know, it's easy to demonize these people as Tea Party people, and you know they are, uh, I know sometimes are even called not intelligent. They are not. These are students who got into a, you know, a good MBA, executive MBA program. They are middle managers at good companies like <coughs> FedEx and Southwest and so on. They're very sensible people. If you run into them, um, to me, the uh, Great Recession was an opportunity for government to <coughs> show that it could. Uh, do differently, and many of these people feel that the stimulus program, they couldn't <coughs> see that it delivered the kinds of benefits that would shift their views of, of government. And so uh, there was a moment at the start of the Great Recession when I felt like these people are now scared and, and, and their views might change, and they are watching what government does. And I, it seems to me that even though as economists we agree that the stimulus programs worked, uh, in, I think there was not any kind of flashy uh, deliver some, something that it delivered that people really changed their minds of government. So this is a very sort of more of a personal answer than perhaps you were seeking, but these are people who I interact with just as I interact with this audience, and I, I, I find it difficult to go against them and say, well, you guys are idiots for not being in favor of redistribution. Are they more convinced at the end of your lectures? Well, I don't try really to convince them. I try to kind of uh, uh, 
you know, have a, have a dialogue with them. I, I do, <coughs> going back to what, uh, how Kamal started, I, I, I think that I'm not convinced, despite the work that the IMF has done in the last few years and what my colleagues have done, that, that the macro consequences of inequality, the, the adverse consequences, are, have been proved beyond, beyond uh, a, a doubt. Um, we clearly have these two cases of the Great Depression and then this recent period where you had uh, the same kinds of mechanisms, the work that my colleagues uh, Kumhoff and Rancier have described where uh, inequality is associated with excessive borrowing on the part of the poor because that's how you're kind of buying them off the poor and the middle class. You let them kind of uh, over leverage themselves and that raises the risk of financial crisis. And so, uh, you know, that, that is very good work, but it, I think, relies on, on sort of these two data points. And uh, to me, the consequences of adverse consequences are, are still very much open to debate. Uh, so when, Kamal, when you describe the increase in poverty in the United States, that distresses me because a tiny bit of redistribution would keep people from sinking into poverty. When you, I cannot bring the same outrage to uh, even uh, this, you know, your stats about 20% of the income going to top 1%. We demonize them by saying these are bankers, but there are also surgeons in there. And I hope uh, uh, brain surgeons and heart surgeons continue to get excessive incomes because they deserve uh, every bit in my view. So, um, Thank you. There's a gentleman there, yeah, question. Uh, thank you very much, uh, George Dragnich, later the ILO and a retired American civil servant, UN and civil service salaries have, have stayed stagnant or, or gone down. Uh, Matthias Rumpf over here from the OECD raised a very interesting point, and I don't know because we don't have your full paper where there was addressed there, the, the difference between entrepreneurs and employees. In America, we all value the entrepreneurs, foreign entrepreneurs as well. I think of people like Vinod Kosla from India, Andreas von Bechtelstein from Germany, who quit the PhD, their PhD program at Stanford and helped uh, form Sun Microsystems. And, and Andy Bechtelstein then taking his profits and investing in Google. Uh, these people were risking their money. In America, everybody loves an entrepreneur that makes that kind of risk. But um, Matthias over here raised an interesting question about employees. These are people who have gotten ahead by so-called compensation committees. And they played the global game exceptionally well. I could see this living in Europe, how everybody in Europe said, well, we have to pay American-like salaries because people will go there. Does your paper address this phenomena of compensation committees? That is fundamentally different from what it was when I entered the labor market many years ago. Thank you. No. Um, but do you have a view on it? I'm sure you do. But the data, I mean, I don't think the data, I don't think the data are available to, to be able to make that distinction among the 0.1%. But do, do I have a view on it? Yeah, I have a view. Um, the, uh, uh, I think the governance at the top of corporations, not just in the United States, although it's particularly bad in the United States, but in other countries, uh, is, uh, is uh, terrible. I mean, it's very simple. I was actually once in business. I was, you know, CEO of a small company. That, uh, uh, and uh, I, I, you know, 
when you get to the very top of these organizations, basically it's the chief executive who appoints the board. <coughs> and it's the board who decides on the compensation. And then the compensation is done and the, and the, and the board is comprised and the compensation committees are comprised of chief executives, very often chief executives all related that are, you know, also either active chief executives or were once chief executives or play golf with chief executives, et cetera, et cetera. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily, in my view, distorted system. And, uh, and the shareholders, the, the broader shareholders actually have very little voice. And they've made some changes, but I think the system remains. And so long as there's a CEO who's appointing the board, the system will, become com will, be, will continue to be completely incestuous. We have a question here. Thank you. I'm uh, Peter Ehrenhaft. I'm a lawyer, corporate uh, governance lawyer. And uh, I wondered whether uh, you would have any comments about the experiment in Germany where they required the Bestimmungsrecht of unions on the board, whether this is a way of uh, kind of uh, equalizing or avoiding the excesses that uh, we supposedly see in the United States. And another aspect about this is that uh, there's been a tremendous effort in the United States to require shareholder approval of these salaries, but it's had absolutely zero impact as far as I've been able to see that uh, the shareholders support the board's determination. So while you may regard it as excessive, the people who have the stake <coughs> in it support it uh, in a free economy, maybe that uh, is indeed the way that it needs to be done. But those are two aspects of the corporate governance issue that I w would be interested in your thoughts. Well, uh, uh, I understand the workings of the market. Um, I'm a trade economist by training. Uh, what I am reflecting on is, is the system for setting compensation. I'm saying it is not an objective system. It is a highly incestuous system. When you get to the very top, not when you are, you know, perhaps two, a couple of layers below, but when at the very top, it's just a very incestuous system. And uh, 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 I'm sure there are ways of doing it better. I, I actually haven't devoted a lot of thought to that, but but uh, recently, but. Uh, uh, there, there, there are ways of creating, and I'm not terribly surprised about you know the shareholders uh, not intervening in the way that you might expect. I mean, you know, most of the shareholders own uh, very little, uh, etc. It's just not going to be uh, not going to be a central issue for them. So I am I am very concerned about the objectivity of the system. And uh, anybody who's seen it at work at high levels, and uh, it's just the very fact that the board is 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 uh, is appointed, uh, and over time, you know, there are situations where the where all, the whole board has been appointed by the one person that they're supposed to judge. Just that um, makes it a, a very bad system. Uri, I'm going to abuse my moderator privilege for a second, and and. I'll press you on that a bit more and say, well, one, an alternative view, and you, you make yours very forcefully, but an alternative view is that the argument that you laid out earlier about an increasingly global economy and a winner-takes-all phenomenon could be playing out perfectly well in firms too. You have 
companies now competing for talent on the global stage, companies selling to a global market. Therefore, there is likely to be an increasingly level global playing field for CEO compensation. And the tightness of compensation committees within one country is much less relevant than the fact that you're now, you know, you're playing in a much bigger global field. And so you, I mean, for example, in the UK, which I know much better than the US, CEO compensation is currently still lower than the US, but it's becoming much higher relative to average wages. And the main reason is that companies are competing in a global marketplace. And so they're having to, you know, go towards global norms. So it may be less the distortive incentive system that you're talking about and the much broader global shifts that you were discussing earlier. Um, again, uh, I have no doubt that the uh, globalization and the winner takes all uh, is affecting you know, wages of these top people worldwide. And I think it is a factor. Uh, but again, I, having observed these processes, uh, uh, you know, close in, um, you just can't get away from, uh, and, and, the dis and the incestuousness of the system is not limited to the United <laughs> States. It's, uh, you, 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 find it in, uh, you find it in many places. And, uh, um, uh, but it would be interesting, you know, it's, again, this is not something I've devoted a lot of time on, but it would be very interesting uh, to take, a, to do an analysis and, and look at uh, how these uh, compensation of very high level people um, uh, compare in different contexts, where, for example, unions are represented, or where the government is represented, or where perhaps uh, uh, you know large pension funds or whatever that are shareholders are playing a more uh, more uh, important role. That that would be very interesting. You, you, you know, you could verify that empirically. Question here. Thanks a lot, Zani. I'm uh, Vikram Nehru from Carnegie. Um, you know, there have been many issues and points raised. I just wanted to see if I could connect some of the dots by quoting a colleague of mine, Moises Naim, when at a similar such panel at which you were in fact moderating Zani, he made the very interesting point that inequality um, is like cholesterol. There's good cholesterol and there's bad cholesterol. And he was saying that there's good inequality and there's bad inequality. Good inequality comes about as a result of people's inherent hard work, their intelligence, the fact that uh, uh, they're able to do better than others, and bad inequality comes about because of policy distortions of various kinds, the fact that people are discriminated on, uh, because of their ethnicity, their nationality, gender, race, and so forth. So the big, I think one of the reasons why we can't get to an optimal inequality of outcomes is because we're mixing up these two concepts. What we really want to ask is, what is the inequality of opportunity for people? To what extent do people have the opportunity to rise vertically, as, as uh, Kamal has mentioned. When we did this analysis in China for the China 2030 project, you know, we found that there were a lot of reasons why rising inequality was in fact a good thing, because this came about as a result of increased competition, structural change, rising technological <laughs> progress, uh, returns to skills. But there was a significant amount of that increase in inequality that came about as a result of increased inequality of opportunity for health, education, access to jobs, to finance. Uh, whether you were born in a rural or urban area made a huge difference. Whether your parents were rich or poor made a big difference. 
And we really should be tracking the inequality of opportunity rather than the inequality of outcomes, because that way we can then focus. And there, uh, uh, Prakash, we have a clear policy objective where the Gini coefficient for the inequality of opportunity should be zero. And there's no, it's unequivocally zero. And you don't have to guess you know, what is the appropriate inequality of outcomes, because we are mixing up these two concepts. Thank you. Do you want to react well, to that? Yeah, I mean, I agree in principle, but of course there are, you know, the more there is inequality the, in terms of income and power and influence, the more difficult it becomes to have equality of opportunity beyond a certain point. So I think uh, uh, one of the, I mean, I think we, all authors of, 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 the, of the paper and maybe all of us here sitting, uh, believe that really the equality of opportunity, you know, within reason. I mean, you, because somebody is sick, that person shouldn't be condemned to eternal poverty. So there has to be a social. Set. I mean, even though that person may not be able to to work as hard as a healthy person, and so on. So there is, you know, there is some equalizing uh, values, if you like, uh, that, that that have nothing to do with equality of opportunity per se. But setting that aside. I think the equality of opportunity is very important and, you know, the mobility. But as we said, and as is quite clear from the data, the mobility is not very good in, in the U.S. and has, you know, has marginally become worse and is worse than in many more equal societies. So there is a link. The two things are not delinked. Now, I don't, I don't remember, Vikram, when you're, what, which period in China you covered, but clearly China came from a very, very equal society to one, you know, to a more unequal one with more competition and more incentives, and that probably was a good thing for Chinese growth. Whether at this point it has reached uh, a danger zone in terms of you know, the same, same kind of statistics that one finds in the US, I think is, is a separate story. But I want to make again one point, um, or, or two points. I, I, mean, I think you know, there's envy everywhere. And Okay, it's not a very admirable thing, and just to envy somebody who's very rich, I, I don't think that's what it's all about. Okay, I think there are two, in, in, in terms of the top concentration argument, okay, there are two arguments which are, I think, serious and have to be addressed strongly. One is the macroeconomic ag argument, and I agree with Prakash, a lot more research is needed, but if one takes a, sim a fairly simple Keynesian model, where the top income earners save a lot, Okay, and the low-income earners don't save or, or the very poor dissave, there is a prima facie kind of case that if you increase the income distribution, you generate the Keynesian problem. By the way, technically what's important is the increase, the delta, not the actual level. But, you know, so there is a macroeconomic policy issue which, which needs to be discussed. You, you know, you can counteract it with policies maybe or whatever. But I think it, it, it exists. And it's not that important if the top has 10% or 8%, 12%, but it, when the top gets 20 or 25%, I think the macroeconomic issue becomes serious. And the second reason why I think one should be really concerned is political capture. Okay? I mean, in a society, and, I, and I'm exaggerating a little bit because the ten, again, I, what, what worries me is that the tendency is always is in the same direction. There's very little counter, counter tendency, you know, in, in labor markets, in technology, in in, in financial sector. So in a society where the top 1% controls 25% of income, you, you would have to have extraordinary kind of uh, democratic counterweights 
for, for that group not to have an outsized influence on, on the policy process. Okay? And I think that, that has nothing to do with envy or with you know, competition. On the contrary, I mean, that group will be able, through its political influence and power, to tilt the balance of policies, of subsidies, of taxes, of tax uh, 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 exemptions, and, you know, towards itself. And I think, frankly, I think this is a serious danger for democracy. Thank you. There's a lady there who's been extremely patient. Thank you. Uh, my name is Carol Hoffman. I'm an attorney and a physician, but I'm not an economist. Uh, I have two things to say. One, about your point about the competition for the people at the top and Britain now owns more than taken away by the U.S. I think that posits that there's a limit in the number of people who could do this job. And I think, in fact, there's probably a, a low, you could probably get someone who is just as good as that much. Um, my original point was something along the lines of what someone said. Could you argue that when the distribution of income is more equal, you get a bigger pie because there is more demand? And use as basis for that or as evidence of that could be the 60s. I graduated from college in 1969. Uh, with many things, uh, maintaining the redistribution of the labor unions, there was a very high progressive tax system. Uh, we didn't have much of the trade sector. And uh, there was also a sort of moral something being no. left over from the war that, the, that, that people at the top of corporations would be embarrassed if they made more than 35 times the, the median worker. And if that sense of embarrassment or social cohesion or whatever, that's completely disappeared. Thank you. I think, I think those are both extremely important points. Kamal, I mean, Kamal you were... You were um, laying out an argument which is basically exactly reinforcing what Kamal said about the, the kind of macroeconomic potential of having a more dis redistributive income distribution. There's a lot of questions. We haven't got much time, so I want to go straight to Reza. You have a question? Yeah, yeah I have actually two points. Uh, one is that basically... Do you wait for uh, the microphone? The, sorry. Um, the, uh, I mean, uh, one point is uh, reacting to Kamal's last... Uh, Turn it on last uh, uh, point on the macroeconomic impact of high inequality. I mean, you know, the fact that maybe there is more saving in the economy does not mean necessarily that there has to be low growth. I mean, the saving can be invested and can be uh, result in future higher growth. So well, that's one thing. Also, I mean, I wonder, you know, in the US, uh, which, as you said, is sort of uh, very high income inequality at the top, saving rate is not very high, uh, quite the contrary. So I'm not sure that you know, I really buy the, the line of uh, Stiglitz and so on. I would like to read the, 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 the paper in more, in more detail before. The other point is, is more of a political point. Does anybody in the panel, can ex anybody in the panel explain to me why in the US with such high inequality, uh, you know, the Republican Party, let's say, I mean, those who advocate less redistribution, less taxes, get so much support in the lower parts of the population. This is something I, I just, you know, fail to understand. I would like to get to that's, that's a question that was you, you just made earlier as well. It seems to be one that's, that's very important. And the panel if wasn't 
wasn't leaping to answer it. Is there actually anybody in the audience who feels, do you, does any, let's just stick with this specific question for the moment. What, what explains the politics in the US? Would you like to elaborate? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if the Occupy Wall Street people channeled their efforts the way that Tea Party people did, we'd have a different situation, I think we'd have a different situation with respect to inequality because these issues are resolved in the political arena, not with economic models. And in the political arena in this country, unfortunately, everything amounts to money. We just had an article in the paper last week. Some unnamed individual gave $10 million to a super PAC that will run ads against Obama and the Democrats. $10 million. You make an important point, and Uri makes this point too, about the political the concentration of wealth impacting political capture and so forth. But I'm not sure that that still explains why many, many millions of poorer Americans vote for policies which are not directly in their own interests. I mean, there's something beyond money that must explain that. So. Uh, here comes the explanation. <laughs> I can't promise to have an explanation, but one thing that I've been wondering Who are um, <laughs> was that, is it possibly that this, this idea of the American dream or achieving something further, that is so ingrained in our society that, I mean, for even me, it was a shock to hear things like mobilization is decreasing in the United States. So could it be that people who believe that they will one day become a part of that 1% don't want to undermine their future, that their future investments would be undermined, that they would suffer? And in the example you brought at Vanderbilt, could it be that students in an MBA program, their primary concern is making more money in the future and to go against their own future, they would undermine future investments or future incentive to grow? Prakash, when you discuss with your students, which I'm sure you do, what, what are the explanations? Because I think that's a very, very important point that you make. You know, is, is, is that the logic that's going on? The great American dream? I, I think that that's certainly part of it. I mean, I, th I think that people do believe that there is uh, a fair amount of mobility, uh, more so than the, than the stats would, would reflect, probably. But what I was trying to, let me take a second stab at this, is I, I, I also feel that these are folks who do not have much faith in, 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 in government as, as a mechanism for delivering anything to them. And I know it's very difficult in this audience to, 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 to kind of say why people should have that view, but that is what people say. They say, I, I, I don't trust any part of my income or anything going to Washington. This is a, a transfer of power, and uh, they don't want any part of it. They don't want policies that redistribute, they don't want, they associate it with things that, you know, money that will that will just uh, vanish from their pockets. So. Gentlemen there. Uh, just a quick point on the question of why uh, people don't vote for their economic interests. Actually, I think the American political science establishment has come up with a lot of answers, and one thing I would highlight is that this, there's this new work called the submerged state, where this political scientist essentially argues that the reason why uh, you know, Americans are what they call, you know, philosophically uh, conservative but operationally on specific policies liberal is because they don't see the operational part of the government. They don't see how the home mortgage interest deduction is actually a massive sub subsidy on the part of the government or amounts to a massive social welfare program. 
uh, in a certain way. And so the problem is that this has two effects, I think the argument goes. First of all, you know, people, as you say, have no faith uh, that they're actually receiving any concrete benefits from these alleged social programs that the government is doing. Um, but second of all, is that these programs actually have a massive debilitating fiscal cost in the government, which further constrains the ability to actually provide and deliver benefits to the average American. So I think there's this, there's this argument, essentially, that the government is working in America, but it's working you know, in a submerged, invisible capacity. And this is what's undermining uh, my massive, the broad faith uh, of the people in the, the government to do its job. Thank you. Gentleman at the back there, you've been very patient too. I'm sorry, I'm going to get to everyone eventually. This is a very short, simple question. Uh, is the full draft someplace on one of your websites? Or since the, that is an important question. Is it up on the website? Uh, it is. Uh, not, uh, uh, no, uh, it's not. It should be. It, it's an important question. It is not up on the website. The, uh, uh, after, unfortunately, after the invitation went, uh, Brookings Press decided to publish this as a small book. <laughs> and uh, they, so they wanted to hold back on it. And so we, uh, it will be available, but it's going to take a, a little while for it to come out. No free prints or anything around? Well, yeah. They're not, I think yeah, should... yeah. If you really very badly want it, give me your, your you card, and I will not reveal to my Brookings colleagues that we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sounds yeah. like the U.S. Yeah. government. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, Apologies. Can you wait for the microphone? The, uh, uh, redistribution um, and, and the role of government. Uh, I just wanted to ask the, the, uh, our authors and panellists uh, whether what your feeling is about the pre-tax and transfers uh, 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 inequality, because I, th I think it has been widening, um, and you've offered some explanations. Uh, but what about the uh, a couple of points that were sort of thrown in almost as asides in the discussion? One is uh, that the profit share in, in income seems to be rising and the wage share falling. And, uh, and, and Kamal made the macro argument that that might affect the balance of savings and consumption. Uh, but what also is happening inside the wage distribution? I think in the United States and in many countries, you've had a, a widening of wage dispersion. Uh, that has been accompanied by a weakening of collective bargaining coverage in a number of countries, not all, but a number. Uh, not so strong minimum wages, although there's quite a comeback on minimum wages in the last couple of years. Um, what's your view on all these things? Uh, 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 Prakash started to, to talk a little bit about it. Um, again, it would seem to me that you're looking at a, a package of things. Uh, the United States has very low employment protection legislation, almost non-existent. Um, uh, Denmark also. But in Denmark, you have a lot of things to make it easy for people when they are changing jobs to find a new one quickly without great income loss. Spain, you have very stringent uh, employment protection legislation until a few weeks ago, but very weak uh, uh, mobility measures. So I just would like to know, <laughs> is there something that we ought to be doing before, if you like, uh, spending all our time on tax and, uh, and transfers, important as that is? Thank you. That's a very important question. Franco, I'm going to turn to you for that, because uh, partly because we haven't heard enough from you. But secondly... Um, <laughs> Put this into a global context, because I think you give lots of examples from lots of countries. Okay. What's institutional factors in the pre-tax distribution of income? Yeah, I was actually going to, to actually raise my hand to answer this question. <laughs> uh, on, I think it's a, it's a very, very pertinent question. Let me give you something that we know from the data, it seems that we know. Uh, this is done by Luxembourg Income Study, which is probably for cross-country purposes the best database, because you have really 
harmonized surveys from basically most of the advanced countries plus few Asian countries. And the Asian countries are important here for the following reason. There are only two of them, Taiwan and Korea. When you look at pre-FISC, which is pre before social transfers and before taxation, which means essentially distribution of assets, be it human assets or human, I mean, human capital or financial capital, ownership, whatever. U.S. is not, I mean, Western countries are fairly similar. You know, people are surprised that Sweden is almost as unequal in market income, which is called market income terms, which is distribution of assets, as the United States. The thing what happens is that, of course, Sweden and the Netherlands and Denmark and so on, as was pointed out before, they redistribute much more, and particularly, as, as OECD, gentlemen from the OECD said, through transport system, they become more equal. Now, one interesting thing which puzzled me, and I have, no, I have not worked on that, I have no answer, but what I noticed, for these two countries that we have, you know, this is uh, uh, South Korea and Taiwan, they are actually very different their Gini coefficient of market income is not very different from the Gini coefficient that at the end happens at the disposable income stage. And they don't redistribute much because it seems that the assets are already fairly, I mean, fairly equally distributed. So if you have fairly equal distribution of education and financial assets, you don't need to have a huge state to redistribute. So I think it's an interesting issue, which, uh, you know, it has not been picked up very much. You know, this is a, a database that is known, but relatively obscure for macroeconomists. So I think it's an important issue. Now, a second point on the U.S., of course, it is really, we talk here mostly about the U.S., but we should not end the U.S. political system, and we have all different views, and there is lots of study of political, U.S. political system. But this is a process of this rising income inequality, which is really a worldwide process. So there must be, maybe the U.S. is leading that process, it's quite possible, but there are really obviously factors that are not U.S. specific, which are behind that. So I think that, you know, there is a, an aspect there which uh, we should not forget. It's actually not only the, about compensations in the U.S. There is something much more deeper, I believe, in, the, in that. Thank you, Branko. We are running out of time. Can I just ask people who have not asked a question before? Lady here, you've been extremely patient. Thank you. Uh, I'm Martha Holdridge, uh, Foreign Service Widow. Uh, I'm Martha Holdridge, a Foreign Service widow. I would like to ask if uh, this uh, paper that you're preparing, I believe, could also measure benefits inequality, because I think it would give, you know, if we could get a feel for that, it might help to move the politics more so that lower income people would have greater opportunity and the higher income people would not have benefits so excessive compared to what their needs are. I think that's a very important point. Yeah. Will you feel no, paper? Uh, well, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no, I mean, go ahead. No, we, do, we do just touch on it. Uh, we, we, you know, we're using statistics from OECD and others to compare. We, ju we just touch on it. But I agree, it, is, it would be good in further work to do I that. I think it should get in the, in the yeah. popular press, in the news media, you know, that term, benefits inequality. And it would, might help to move for, you know, tax reform and that sort of thing. So a very good point. One last question, and I'm sorry for those of you who haven't had them, but the lady over there, we're going to run out of time. So last, last brief question. Hi, I'm Nancy Donaldson with the ILO. Um, so I, I read uh, Michael Kumhoff's work, uh, your colleague, um, and found it very interesting to see his work and others coming from the IMF about looking at 
part of this uh, issue as a loss of labor voice, not defined too precisely. So it's not just union representation or, um, or uh, ability to influence access to housing. I mean, it, it, it seems to be a variety of things. But I found myself being in the United States in this context, thinking about the rise of labor voice, where, where that's happening and how that might show up in the macroeconomics and would be interested in your thoughts. Um, the one thing I want to say is that um, I was talking with a colleague who's an expert in, in the changes in China around labor rights and labor issues. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter whether people think international labor standards and, and, and an ability for middle class and for the union voice to come in. It's going to, and where it's going to come from is Chinese workers, I mean the equivalent. And that this shift in having the rise from poverty, as you were talking about, in China and India and other places where there are massive rise in the Middle East in a different way, is going to come back potentially, maybe it's the wave that you're talking about, to have uh, a redistribution. And I think it's going to be related to jobs and uh, employment. Do you agree? <laughs> Thank you. That's a, a very interesting note to end on, both perhaps for, we'll give the, the respondents the last word for Prakash and for Branko. Is this, is the rise of the middle class, to just elaborate a little bit, the rise of the, the scarcity of the Chinese worker, the rise of middle class around the world going to be the push that changes this towards greater redistribution? Could be. I have not thought of that, actually. But let me, I mean, my first reaction is, uh, you know, it could be, but, uh, you know, I haven't thought of that. Prakash? Yeah, uh, I didn't know if there were going to be closing statements, so I'll use my half a minute for a closing statement. I, I was going to close on exactly this note, Nancy, that I think that uh, what Michael's work and uh, uh, Roman's work shows is that I, I think what is behind the problem is the loss of, of workers' uh, voice, their loss of, uh, of uh, bargaining power, and that, that has clearly eroded, uh, not just because Reagan... Uh, kill the airline unions, but because of a whole host of factors. And I think that it, it's important to say that that's wrong and that that needs to be reversed. And again, like Branco, I'm intrigued by your suggestion that where the push will come is from the, the rising uh, middle class in, in China and India. Uh, that's an optimistic note on which to end. I certainly <laughs> hope that's the case. It's also a very ironic note on which to end that U.S. rising inequality may ultimately be alleviated with the rising middle class in China. Thank you all very much for a terrific Thank discussion. Thank you.